0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.
2: Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a physician and cardiologist and I'm the Human Futures Fellow in the College of Health and Medicine at the Australian National University.
1: And I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy here at the Crawford School at the Australian National University. I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. Ana Greta, it's great to be here today.
2: It is, and I'm very I'm very much looking forward to today's discussion. Sharon, we're finishing our mini-series on care today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Anna Greta, as our regular listeners know, the value of care is central to most, probably all, the conversations that we have on the pod. But over the past few weeks, we've been explicitly focusing on the theme of care, And we've had some incredible conversations, beginning with Millie Rooney and that really amazing work that she's doing on rethinking the public good and the importance of developing, resourcing and supporting the infrastructure of care. We had a fabulous conversation with John Falzon and Casey Chambers when we undertook a care-focused analysis of the recent federal budget here in Australia, which in the midst of an election campaign now seems a long time ago. That analysis revealed the extent to which care is missing in the current policy discourse. And we're a long way from having having in place what John Falzon described as the architecture of care. In the third episode of this mini-series on care we spoke with the newly appointed United Nations special rapporteur on the promotion and the protection of human rights in the context of climate change the conversation revealed powerfully the need to care for people and for planet and the inseparability of humans and the environment in which we live and we've also explored formal care systems in australia and how they can be strengthened Diane Gibson and Kasia talked us through the ways in which the aged care system is failing but they also gave us some incredibly important solutions for addressing those systemic failures and they gave us hope for achieving those solutions and they highlighted the need to care for all within the system, both residents of aged care homes but also workers.' And we spoke in the last episode with James Trower and Kylie Walcock about how we can think differently about healthcare and how important ideas around value-based care give us a way forward. And of course, in the midst of all of that, we had our live pod with our sister podcast, Democracy Sausage. Which Anna Greta gave you and I the opportunity to talk with Nick Biddle and with Mark Kenny, as well as a very engaged audience, about the urgent need to bring care into politics and into policy. And interestingly, in recent weeks, we've seen the language of care tentatively entering political discourse in Australia. And that's quite an important shift. Today we have a very special episode to end this mini-series. If not Um, ending our ongoing conversations around care because they will certainly continue. Today we want to explore the global, the macro context within which all the issues that we've been discussing over recent weeks play out. What does the neoliberal paradigm that dominates so much of our thinking, of our policy and of our practice mean for care? What kinds of rethinking are needed to address some of the challenges that countries, communities and individuals are facing around the world? What is the outcome? of the financialisation and the marketisation of care and care services that we've seen emerge as such a prominent feature of 21st century capitalism and what might a new paradigm look like. And to s- discuss all of these issues, we have a very special guest. Anna Greta, would you like to do the introductions?
2: No, very much so. What a conversation we're going to have. Alfredo Saad Filio is a Professor of Political Economy and International Development and Head of the Department of International Development at King's College in London. Previously, he was Professor of Political Economy at SOAS University of London, Chair of the SOAS Department of Development Studies and Head of SOAS Doctoral School. He was a Senior Economic Affairs Officer at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Alfredo was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Medal from the Federal University of Goias. Brazil in 2014, and the SOAS Directors Teaching Prize in 2016. He has degrees in economics from the University of Brasilia and SOAS University of London, and has taught at universities and research institutions in Brazil, Canada, Germany, Italy, Japan, Mozambique, Switzerland, and the UK. He's authored or edited nine books and well over 100 journal articles and book chapters. He's contributed to a wide range of UN reports, It is such a delight to have him on today's podcast. Welcome, Alfredo.
0: Thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's it's a real privilege for me.
2: I wanted to start by asking you about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is a very slippery concept, and you've written that it's impossible to define it theoretically. But can you talk us through the characteristics of neoliberalism? Uh,
0: Neoliberalism... I think, it's one of the defining concepts of our age. And it is a paradox that there is so much debate about uh, what it means or even uh, does it exist at all. One part of this paradox or this uh, difficulty to define the concept is that essentially no one defines themselves or calls themselves neoliberal. This is, on the one hand... And interestingly, a term that defines our age, that distinguishes the current uh, phase or the current configuration or the current mode of existence of global capitalism. And on the other hand, a term rejected by uh, the people who typically represent this face this mode of existence of global capital. So it's, it's a very interesting situation that we find ourselves in. Within the social sciences, then, the orthodoxy, particularly focusing on economics, the orthodoxy essentially rejects the existence of this concept. It calls it meaningless when they um, engage with it at all. And from the point of view of the uh, heterodoxy, the critics of contemporary capitalism that use the concept and try to deploy it to explain features uh, of the world in which uh, we live, often the concept slips from between a descriptive term to a term of abuse as well, especially if we move towards the more campaigning side of the critique of what currently exists. Even within the heterodoxy, a large group of people just simply deny the existence of neoliberalism, reject the term, and work in different frameworks. So we, we, we do have a great field of divergence uh, and debate. If you look at the people who use the term, who de- who accept it and deploy it, then you will find different ways of framing it. A group of people will look at le- neoliberalism as a concept connected to class relations class struggle and power struggles. It's the the power grab by the elite. It's the resumption of control by the the rich, by the top 1%, by the oligarchs over society, a control that had slipped uh, from their hands in the late 1960s and into the 1970s. And that is clearly something that uh, reflects a real phenomenon that was going on. So focus on social relations, and now liberalism as this um, return to uh, a more authoritarian form of capitalism within the workplace and within society as a whole, favoring the rich. Another way to look at it, uh, and it's not incompatible, it's it's a, it's a different angle, is to look at public policies and I think a large part of this uh, literature comes from the UK. You look at Margaret Thatcher's uh, conservative economic policies in the 1980s, especially, and the conclusion is withdrawal of the state, a rollback of the welfare aspect of the, the the Keynesian states and social democratic states that became um, dominant uh, in the advanced economies in the West, particularly. Uh, In in Western Europe uh, after the Second World War. And then the cuts in public education, public health, uh, social care, etc., etc. Cuts on a whole range of areas of social provision. uh, And that is what makes neoliberalism typical. It's it's changes in, in social policy, changes in economic policy. Another way to look at neoliberalism is in the domain of ideologies. The, this ideology or neoliberalism is, 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 is expressed by this ideology of individualism uh, that is associated with the Austrian school, associated with Hayek, associated with uh, von Mises, associated with this extreme uh, individualism and this notion of individuals who should be entrepreneurs of themselves. There are no social problems uh, there are only individual problems, or perhaps individual deficiencies, and if you have a problem like unemployment or if you need health care or if you want education, these are your problems. There is no reason why somebody else should pay for them, should cover for you. You have to be an autonomous, independent, enterprising individual who will position yourself within society and then do well uh, for yourself uh, without counting. On other people or the state to bail you out should you come into trouble. So, is this ethics of individualism, is this approach to the subjectivity of individuals pushing them to become independent? And if you look at it from the other side of the coin, to break with a sense of collectivity that had been built very gradually, but especially strongly during the course of the Second World War and after the The Second World War. So people will approach neoliberalism in in these ways. Another school of thought, and I tend to prefer this one, focuses on neoliberalism through the angle of financialization. Financialization as um, a phenomenon that cuts across the previous features of neoliberalism that I just mentioned, but that can also uh, help to explain the restructuring of production the restructuring of international relations in the last 40 years or so that can help to explain the different ways in which society uh, organizes and runs itself and the different patterns of labor, different technologies that we have seen uh, emerging in the last decades. So all these different approaches to neoliberalism, they're not, as I said, incompatible. They're just privileging slightly different angles, and there can be constructive dialogue between them. They're also not associated very clearly with specific schools of economic or social thought, that one school focuses on this and the other school focuses on that angle uh, or that interpretation. It's not the case. Uh, Different authors will uh, stress different features of current reality, attribute them to something systemic that they call neoliberalism, and then proceed to explain other aspects of our society through that angle. So it's a very rich, very fertile uh, area for debate, and there is no orthodoxy there, there's no conclusion as such there, but there is a lot of space for, uh, for dialogue and for investigation uh, within this field.
1: Alfredo, the critics of, of what we might call neoliberalism, you know, within uh, those different approaches that you've outlined so so beautifully, will often point to the ways in which neoliberal ideas have been imposed, particularly on countries of the global south. You know, there'll often be uh, um, the beginning with the structural adjustment programs that we saw imposed in countries from the the late 1970s. Although, of course, some countries of the global south, Chile is a a case in point under Pinochet, embraced some of the the ideas of neoliberalism that that you've outlined. But critics will will kind of point to a relationship between neoliberalism, imperialism and globalisation and you've started to talk about that when you talked about the the global economic structures that we see um, dominant, dominating globally. Can you talk us through how you see this relationship between neoliberalism on the one hand and then imperialism and globalisation?
0: That's a, a very important aspect, again, of current reality and a very interesting area for investigation. I think one first point of contact between these aspects of contemporary capitalism comes straight from the late 1970s. The uh, crisis in US hegemony internationally that followed or was uh, expressed through the defeat of the United States in Vietnam, then the defeat of the United States uh, with the revolution in Iran, uh, and the dollar crisis that was taking place at that point in time. Neoliberalism helped to restore that U.S. Uh, hegemony through financialization, through the restructuring of production. It gave the United States much more latitude to exercise its power in the international sphere, which we could call imperialism. The restructuring and financialization of economies uh, internationally uh, led to the phenomenon that we commonly call globalization. Globalization including both the restructuring of production and the transnationalization of processes of accumulation around the world. Not in the same way as before. Countries have always been integrated internationally. They have always had... Relations of trade and 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 finance. What we see now, as typical of the neoliberal phase of globalization or typical of neoliberal globalization, neoliberal uh, forms of uh, international integration, is that um, global production has been integrated not at the level of countries as was generally the case before individual products were made in particular countries, and then the finished product was exported abroad, we now see integration within each production chain so that inputs move from country to country. They are processed gradually in different parts of the world, and they go through a process of final assembly in a different part of the world, which happens to be these days often uh, in China as the in practice, assembly line uh, of the world for a large part of manufactured products. So this form of production that is associated with globalization, that integrates individual production chains, that is very typical of the neoliberal age in which we live. And that will connect with financialization. You cannot have internationalized production without internationalized banks as well, without international, relatively free international circulation and exchange of different currencies. So in this sense, financialization, globalization of production in the sense of transnationalization of production chains and the restoration of U.S. imperialism, U.S. hegemony over international institutions rulemaking, accounting standards, and policy making at the global level. These things came together. It's not that they were planned together. It's not an issue of a conspiracy to impose a particular model, uh, a preset model uh, of the functioning of the global economy. It's something that emerged uh, spontaneously, tentatively, gradually with the crisis of uh U- US hegemony in the 1970s with the social crisis or the crisis of social discipline the growth of the left in the 1960s and 70s and then leading to a perception within the United States among elites everywhere in the western world of the need to restore order and neoliberalism came as a resolution to that after other solutions were tried over time neoliberalism worked it provided a solution that restored stability in the international domain and within domestic societies uh, as well. So in that sense, it is functional. Uh, And it became, it is so functional that it spread out and it became the typical form of capitalism today. Not the only one, but the typical form. Uh, So it retains even today a lot of vitality and it does bring together all those different aspects of global capitalism that you summarized Very well under imperialism, globalization, well neoliberalism itself, financialization—all these uh, different aspects of uh, existence uh, today.
2: You've given us a great insight into the map of some of the advantages, the structural reasons why neoliberalism has become the dominant paradigm. Perhaps we can touch on some of the the other side of the neoliberal uh, paradigm. According to the World Bank and others, extreme poverty declined remarkably from the 1990s until immediately before the onset of COVID-19. But of course, poverty remains deep and widespread, as does inequality. Can we talk a little bit about the relationship between poverty and neoliberalism? How has neoliberalism impacted on poverty and on social dislocation around the world?
0: That is a very deep and very important question. I think think the first thing that I I would want to highlight with respect to poverty is that reducing poverty and particularly addressing extreme poverty is cheap. This has been, because of changes in technology and because of the extreme poverty itself of large uh, sections of humanity... It is not very difficult, and it has been proven by experiences of social policy in different parts of the world. It is not very difficult to uh, reduce dramatically child mortality, for example, through vaccination. Vaccines are cheap, and they can be administered relatively easily around the world. And it is also, and programs of um, public transfers uh, around the world uh, have shown that it is relatively cheap to lift the bottom of the distribution of income through relatively modest social programs. In Latin America, for example, several countries have implemented social transfer programs that reduced extreme poverty dramatically with transfers in the region of 0.5% of GDP. So, neoliberalism in itself is a form of organization of public policy of uh, of the functioning of society of the introduction of new technologies etc that tends to concentrate income uh, wealth and power it tends to do that it imposes labor regimes that are precarious it tends to create structural unemployment it tends to reduce social protections it tends to roll back important aspects of, uh, of the welfare state it tends to consolidate social divisions, it tends to concentrate wealth in the hands of those who are already privileged. At the same time as new technologies and new systems of public administration allow us, give us the space to reduce extreme poverty and address health um, and other um, aspects of extreme poverty Uh, very efficiently and relatively cheaply, So you have these two aspects of the poverty uh, issue under neoliberalism coexisting. And you find neoliberal countries then where social indicators tend to be dramatically poor, and these can be poor countries and they can be advanced countries as well. Social uh, indicators in the United States can be dramatically insufficient uh, and lacking, particularly for the most underprivileged sections of the population in a very rich society that could have eliminated those problems if they wanted to. So in that sense, perpetuation of poverty in forms of um, deep human deprivation it can be a policy choice, and very often it is a policy choice. Since it would be so easy, so cheap, so within our means to eliminate them, especially in the middle-income to rich uh, economies, their perpetuation, in my view, is the outcome of a choice. You, you simply choose to have a destitution uh, in your society. Could we have done better? Yes, absolutely. And even neoliberal countries, and the experiences, again, in Latin America during the 2000s, during the so-called pink tide administrations, show that even in neoliberal economies, a little bit of effort, a little bit of public policy, a little bit of interest, a little bit of transfers, a little bit of social programs can have dramatic effects. So it is possible to eliminate poverty even under neoliberalism, but much faster, much more efficiently in a different a form of social organization, a different type with a different type of public policy, one that is committed to interested in reversing the damage that has already been caused over time by neoliberalism itself and by previous forms of exclusion uh, that existed in systems of uh, accumulation that predated uh, neoliberalism. so we have the potential to do much more, but even under neoliberalism we do notice. Uh, social progress that is to be commended, even in the poorest country, that is to be commended. But what I think we have to say is, much more is possible. It's not difficult
1: to achieve. Let's do it, Alfredo. Where in the in the immediate wake of of the Cold War, we saw a great deal of optimism about the rise of democracy and the spread of democracy globally. In many parts of the world where we're now seeing what's often described as a political crisis of democracy, and you've talked about the drift towards increasingly authoritarian forms of neoliberalism that we're seeing in some parts of the world. Can you talk us through that process and what it means for people's lives and for their freedoms?
0: I think this is very alarming, What what is happening in the world today, um, this drift towards authoritarianism in so many countries and regions. I do think that this is a structural crisis of democracy that we're witnessing. This is not a slip. This is not a blip. This is not uh, simply because voters made a series of uh, mistakes that will be self-correcting because those authoritarian populist right-wing leaders will be defeated at the next election. I don't think that is what is going on. Neoliberalism is associated with authoritarianism within the workplace. It's associated with authoritarianism in the sense of the restoration and growth of the power of the elites that were already privileged. At the same time, neoliberalism over the past... 30, 40 years, through the restructuring of the economy and society, has not been capable of creating income, employment, uh, and prosperity for the vast majority of the population. So immediately here, you have a problem, which is social exclusion is one of the aspects and one of the consequences of neoliberalism, and it cannot be, it has not been compensated by economic advancement there is then a tendency to slip towards authoritarianism as a way to secure the continuity of the system of accumulation. This paradox, this difficulty of lack of economic prosperity in the search for legitimacy for neoliberalism was uh, shaken by the global financial crisis that started in 2007. What the global financial crisis uh, showed was that a system that is heavily financialized in which the rich are allowed to continue to accumulate, that system does not generate prosperity for all, and it can create very large crises and huge instability in the domain of the economy. That, I think, undermined the political legitimacy of neoliberalism quite significantly. And then following from the global financial crisis, especially the advanced economies in the world, drifted into a situation that was described even by the most uh, traditional establishment economists as a great stagnation. Prosperity simply did not come back. Now, you lose political legitimacy because you cannot generate prosperity for the majority of the population. You lose legitimacy because the system that you promised, based on competition and the withdrawal of the state, you promised you would it would create prosperity and it would create economic stability. And in fact, it generates the largest economic crisis, the deepest economic crisis since 1929. How are you going to stabilize this this system? It loses consent and the drift since the global financial crisis has been in a more intensified and a more accelerated way a drift towards maintaining global neoliberalism through authoritarianism, through authoritarian measures. Now, we see this going back further in time. We see this going back to increasing militarization of policing, uh, especially in the United States, but in other countries as well. We see it through changes in legislation that came with neoliberal uh, administrations in different parts of the world, uh, repressing trade unions, repressing all forms of collective activity, and trying to divide people who might be in a position to try and challenge neoliberalism. After 9 there has been a much more accelerated, much more intensified drift towards state-led authoritarianism in, in the West, and this has been intensified even more since the global financial crisis. So these measures, these public policy measures undermining public freedoms and democracy had been taking place for many years before the current moment in time. The pandemic has served to intensify that as well, in terms of the possibilities of power grab by states to control communications, to control public assemblies, to control a public movement or the movement of, of citizens. This is a structural trend. Another structural trend that has been taking place is, as I mentioned very briefly before, the restructuring of globalized production that has led to the uh, destruction of many careers, many professions, especially skilled professions, especially well-paid professions, stable, formal professions, formal labor market professions that were, to some extent, the backbone of the traditional working class in the previous period of Keynesianism and social democracy. In, in several countries, well, in several advanced economies in the West, been, there has been extensive deindustrialization and extensive job losses, particularly in those sectors of the working class, those segments of the working class that were relatively privileged in the previous period. And those jobs were replaced uh, with. Precarious jobs, the jobs that have been growing in recent times under neoliberalism are precarious, short term, it's often Uber drivers and food delivery riders, that, that, that sort of job, and it was call centers before, that sort of job is the typical job under neoliberalism and the good manufacturing jobs are being exported abroad. This has created what I tend to call a social layers of losers under neoliberalism economic losers, social groups that have lost out economically. And these social groups were also disempowered in the sense that trade unions, the political parties, especially on the left, that were in a position to and had traditions of contesting the power of the elites, they lost uh, space. They lost capacity to represent those social groups that were themselves uh, disarticulated and to some extent demolished. So in the absence of capacity to mobilize, in the absence of the right to mobilize that has been taking a battering in many different uh, countries, in the presence of an increasingly neoliberal media, right-wing media associated with the defense of neoliberalism and justifications for neoliberalism, it has become very difficult to mobilize against the global economic system. And what I um, suggest has uh, happened is a a projection of agency. You as an individual, you have very little power. You are dissatisfied with your situation, especially if you're among the losers. You're dissatisfied with your situation. You find it difficult to interpret, to understand what has happened to you and to people that you know and to your family. And why is it that children, perhaps for the first time in the history of capitalism, do not have the prospect of doing better than their parents did in economic terms. And this is hugely damaging for the legitimacy of neoliberalism and of capitalism itself. You, but you are, you are unhappy, but you are not in a position to change things. And there are no collective mechanisms of action that can support you in claiming for and, and having the ambition ambition of uh, of change. You are then invited by the media but also by own feelings of dissatisfaction and powerlessness to project your agency and transfer it to somebody else. Often, a political leader that comes from outside the conventional political system, think Donald Trump, think Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, or it could be a political leader that was already there and had already developed a particular image, think Narendra Modi in India or Recep Tayyip Erdogan in 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 Turkey. Somebody who comes and says, I am going to resolve your problems. So give me the power, give me uh, your confidence, and I will resolve problems that you are unable to address. And then those leaders come and offer a political program that very frequently and paradoxically is an anti-neoliberal Political program, at least at the level of rhetoric, is the defense of the main street as opposed to Wall Street. It's the defense of the interests of the ordinary people as opposed to the elites. It's the defense of the interests of people who feel they have been disadvantaged. In contrast with high-level civil servants who use the state for their own uh, benefit, the corrupt politicians. And I, as the great uh, leader, I will confront all those obstacles and I will give you power and I will restore your position uh, within society. Now, this is clearly impossible. It would not happen without a significant restructuring of a neoliberal economy in order to address the causes of the disempowerment of large numbers of people, uh, in order to address the causes of the growing social needs that families have had in recent times with the withdrawal of Uh, social uh, welfare measures, etc. So these politicians were positioning themselves for power on the basis of huge hopes that were projected onto them, and they had this double commitment. One was a personal commitment to keeping power to themselves, and the other was a commitment to essentially preserving neoliberalism itself, despite their rhetoric. So you have these contradictory pressures in the power of those authoritarian leaders, those spectacular authoritarian leaders that lead, in my view, are not only to an increasingly authoritarian state because of the policy measures that they take, these leaders take in their own uh, benefit in order to preserve their own power and in order to disguise the fact that they cannot resolve problems. They cannot resolve social and economic problems. They are not confronting the causes of those problems. They are not addressing neoliberalism as a cause of social and economic uh, and political problems in their societies. What they do as a method of governing is to create enemies, is to project battles that their supporters must engage, supporting themselves as political leaders in succession, addressing the other, a succession of others that are alleged to be causing those problems. Then the others can be Within the nation, it can be the immigrants, the others can be uh, the feckless poor that suck the welfare state by claiming benefits they should not be entitled uh, to have. They can be the civil servants or they can be the corrupt politicians, and then you do a campaign against this or a campaign against that, or the enemy can be abroad and then you treat other nations as enemies, uh, as an exploitative parasite that suck your jobs away, etc. But this, again, will not resolve problems, but it will allow these leaders to have cycles of popularity in which they pretend to be resolving the fundamental difficulties of the nation and of their political base. But they don't. And they don't, they won't. And the, the risk, from my point of view, is that the systematic failure, ultimately, the systematic failure of these leaders to address the causes of problems will open space for fascism. Because fascism can offer a defense of certain traditional, already relatively privileged groups uh, in society, it can offer to defend them in ways that are logically coherent our group is being threatened by the encroachment of outsiders. So let us confront those outsiders uh, by any means that we find useful, uh, and let us impose absolute authoritarian uh, rule as a way to entrench our privileged position or as a way to restore our privileged position let us create a false sense of unity through nationalism for example or through ra- racism uh, in order to entrench or to restore our privileges in society that we feel we have uh, we have lots so of fascism does have a discourse that can appeal and this is an extremely dangerous discourse it has to be confronted But how to do that without restoring that sense of collectivity, I find that very difficult.
1: Alfredo, that's a, a very powerful analysis, if quite a disturbing one. That's a point at which I think we will take a short break and we will come back to continue this conversation in just a moment. So, listeners, don't go away.
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian
2: National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hotplate every Monday and Thursday.
1: Welcome back. We're here with Alfredo Sahad-Fillio, is Professor of Political Economy and International Development and Head of the Department of International Development at King's College London. And we have covered quite a lot of territory, um, around from the meaning of neoliberalism to some of the the threats to democracy that we're currently facing. And Alfredo, uh, before the break, you started to talk a little bit about the impacts of COVID-19 and i wanted to to now kind of look forward to what might happen in the wake if not in the wake of the pandemic as we think about managing the pandemic differently one of the possible policy approaches as countries move out of covid-19 responses such as lockdowns and restrictions is fiscal austerity in order to repair the debt that many countries have accrued what in your mind are the implications if austerity is pursued as countries do move out of, of lockdowns and restrictions. This is
0: real fork on the road. When the global financial crisis hit, uh, the policy measures taken by several advanced economy governments was uh, involved essentially huge fiscal spending uh, in order to salvage uh, the banks, primarily to salvage the financial system, symbolised by policies of quantitative easing. And when the pandemic hit, this was exactly the kind of policy that governments um, resorted to, uh, first of all, uh, in the West. Very quickly, in a matter of days, they realized that those policies would not be sufficient, and then uh, fiscal spending increased uh, even more. So we come out of the pandemic in A fragile situation in terms of uh, the fiscal position of governments, much higher levels of debt in particular, with economies that are not doing particularly well and that did not recover uh, very fast or or in a very sustained way. Uh, And now we are hit by another uh, source of crisis and disruption in the global economy through uh, the war uh, in the Ukraine. Now it will be extremely difficult. For the uh, neoliberal administrations, particularly the, the, the authoritarian neoliberal administrations we, we have today, to justify fiscal austerity in the name of the uh, the need for everybody to tighten their belts and then to restore fiscal balance in the wake of the pandemic. Because the size of the disequilibrium is much larger than it ever was before, but also because of the loss of legitimacy of the system. It is obvious for everybody that the millionaires and the billionaires did extremely well out of the pandemic. So how can you justify austerity for the majority in a situation when the rich clearly have gained enormously? And it's transparently obvious that governments ultimately even though there were some social programs introduced to protect incomes, they were fundamentally protecting the incomes of the rich rather than protecting the incomes uh, of the poor. So I think there will be a, a, a political difficulty imposing traditional style uh, austerity. There are increasing pressures for taxation of the millionaires, taxation of the large uh companies, uh, taxation in particular of the oil sector, and that connects with debates about uh, climate crises and the essential policy measures that have to be taken in order to protect the possibility of life uh, in the world, or at least life as we uh, recognize it today. So I uh, suspect what we're going to see in years to come uh, is not um, uh, a resumption of economic prosperity. I don't think neoliberalism has Uh, A way to restore economic prosperity is probably, I think, much more likely that we're going to see a continuation of economic stagnation that in itself compresses fiscal, potential fiscal revenues, and then a political dispute and possibly successive political impasses uh, in order to allocate the costs, to allocate the costs, allocate the responsibilities for what happened in the past, and to decide who is going to pay for it. Now, this is risky, it is dangerous, but it also offers for the heterodoxy, for the left, for progressive forces, uh, the opportunity to raise a, deba- a debate, to raise a debate about who has gained and who should pay, uh, who has most the most need and who has the most capacity to contribute to the next phase uh, of economic recovery. And hopefully, together with this debate, I think it would be essential to launch a debate about the restoration of democracy within workplaces and in societies And put all this together as conditions for moving forward in the context of climate crisis. If we can do this, I see uh, hope. If we cannot do this, then I uh, would be very pessimistic about the years to come.
2: It's amazing how we can weave together those threads. You've just gone through some of the issues with the economic system and the sorts of challenges that we've faced, particularly with the pandemic, as a significant stressor. We've talked on the pod several times in the last couple of years about the shortcomings of GDP as a measure of development. What are your thoughts on that metric? And and do you think we should be exploring alternatives as part of a transition to a world where we contend with a number of challenges simultaneously?
0: The deficiencies, the shortcomings of uh, GDP as a, as a measure of economic wealth and prosperity, they are uh, well known and they're very, very important. Um, GDP does only measures uh, monetized economic activity. It only measures activity that is declared to the relevant uh, authorities. Uh, GDP uh, distorts uh, measures of welfare. It gives uh, the wrong signals. For uh, public policy priorities, uh, in 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 many ways, I do think we have to explore different alternatives, alternatives that focus not on uh, not on means and particularly not on monetary means, but focus on ends. What is economic activity for? It's for human welfare. So let's look at those measures of human welfare. Let's look at health and education and life expectancy and quality of life in all its. Uh, in all its aspects, uh, for the majority of the population. So it might we might be legitimate, for example, when you're assessing quality of life, not to do simply the average, but to chop off the top of the distribution. Because at the very top of the distribution, you have people who are extraordinarily priv- privileged by all uh, measures and that do not represent the vast majority of the population. And because of the law of averages can distort public policy and the allocation of resources in in society. So talk about the 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 bottom 80% for example and that would be more representative of the way in which society uh, functions and more representative of the social needs that government policy should be addressing. Now, there is at the same time a temptation, a tendency, a wish, a desire to have one single number that can resolve all our problems. GDP provides that in a very easy and and tempting way. I think we have to resist that, that temptation. Life is complicated. The world is complicated. You will never have one single number that does all the work in terms of measuring economic prosperity, welfare, need, all of that at the same time. So I think we do have to go back to Uh, To fundamentals uh, and look at what is it that we are working for. And we're working for the welfare of the vast majority. How do we assess that? What are the key variables? And we can develop different indices. We just have to be uh, willing to contemplate the fact that there will not be one single number. There will be several numbers uh, that we should be taking into account to decide on public policy priorities.
1: Alfredo, this has been a fantastic conversation and one that I would like to continue for many, many hours to come, but we're we're going to need to to draw um, the conversation to a conclusion for now, but we do hope you'll come back at some point to talk to us again. In your writing, you've talked about the need for a politics of humanity and hope, and that seems to be a good place to bring this conversation to a close. How do we get, begin to reshape politics and to reshape our economic thinking so that humanity, hope, and care are valued and prioritized?
0: I think this is the challenge that we have at this moment in time and will continue to be a challenge for years to come. Uh, what I think we need to focus on um, are traditional concerns or around uh, collectivity, around equality, around solidarity, uh, around bringing together uh, different contributions, different experiences, uh, experiences, and different hopes into uh, a process of building up uh, a common future uh, for us. Now, liberalism has done a lot of destructive work, dividing people, creating rivalries, uh, creating uh, the perception of zero-sum games in terms of social welfare, in terms of public policy, in terms of resourcing, and we need to push politics uh, and social dialogue in a different direction where we can all contribute to each other and we can together build a more uh, a more equal uh, world if we can do that i think there is uh, there's hope and there's there are endless possibilities. If if we cannot do that relatively quickly, given the imperative of uh, of climate change, if we cannot do that relatively cheap, uh, relatively quickly, apologies, uh, then we will have a situation of uh, grave difficulties for ourselves, for our children, uh, for our children's children, and by the end of this century, I am are concerned according to the evidence that we have got available that the world will be a very different place so we ought to um address those challenges immediately and we can only do that on the basis of the of the power the experiences and the hopes of the vast majority of people the way we are going uh, it is simply not sustainable and is not a good way we will not be able to address these difficulties under neoliberalism and especially not under authoritarian neoliberalism.
1: Alfredo, as we draw these conversations to a close, we often ask our guests for um, a single key piece of policy advice that you would give to to decision makers, particularly as we move out of COVID 19 lockdowns and restrictions. Given the breadth of, of our conversation today, it's very difficult to think about one key piece of advice. But I wonder if there is one priority that you would put forward as, as the thing that we need to, to focus on to begin that kind of transition you've just mapped.
0: As you say, it is very <laughs> difficult to, to, um, to focus on one single thing. But collective action, I think, is imperative. And uh revoking laws that currently prevent collective action, that make it very difficult, that make it illegal under many circumstances, particularly for trade unions and other uh, collective organizations, I think that would be a massive step to allow people to breathe a little bit and be able to think of what the next steps uh, could be uh, going forward.
1: Alfredo Sardfilio, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and for sharing your incredible expertise. Um, We do hope that you will come back at some time in the future, but thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been uh, delightful uh, to talk to you, and uh, yes, I'm looking forward to next time.
1: Sharon,
2: that really was an extraordinary conversation. I feel like by the deep discussion of neoliberalism and the associated ways in which we organise ourselves globally, Alfredo's offered us a, an extraordinary quilt or a web by which we can understand some of the other challenges that we've explored. What were your thoughts?
1: I just love that conversation. Um, I've been looking forward to this for, for some time and it, it certainly lived up to my very high expectations. I think that's a conversation that I will be returning to for a long time to come as I kind of think over some of the things that Alfredo said. Um, and there was, there was so much territory covered. But one of the really striking things for me was that around the world, countries and communities Despite such differences in context and history, um, different levels of socioeconomic and human development, the countries are facing very, very similar issues that stem from similar ways of thinking and similar dominant paradigms. And Alfredo helps us to unpack some of that, to understand it more deeply, and through that understanding to be able to think about how we can move forward differently. And I think those ideas of hope and humanity that he talks about in his writings and that he talked about today are just so fundamentally important and they link so powerfully to the conversations that we regularly have about care. And so I think for part of that conversation, you know, it was very confronting, you know, the the challenges sometimes feel overwhelming, but there was hope at the end. And for me, there was a prioritisation of humanity, of care for people and for planet, and that's a message of great optimism.
2: Sharon, I was really struck by this conversation, how well uh, Alfredo took us through a variety of interrelated, interconnected complexities about how we live and and where we're living and the way that we care for each other. And I was reminded a little bit of our conversation with Anthea Roberts and Nicola Lamp when we talked about their book, The Six Faces of Globalisation. And the idea that that we might need to conceptually move from Occam's razor towards Occam's quilt of understanding that solutions are often not simple, um, and that there, that there may not be one number to replace GDP, uh, but that in fact, in fact the solutions that that give us give us well-being, give us a happy and healthy life uh, may be complex, and allowing some space for that complexity, I think, is very important. Um, Alfredo helped us to define some of that landscape.
1: Yes, Anna Greta, I I think that's right. These issues are incredibly complex, but I think when we hear from people like Alfredo um, and also from people like Anthea and Nicholas, we realise that actually embracing that complexity, understanding it and then using it as a way forward is really powerful. And understanding that complexity also, I think, gives us a way of thinking very deeply about care valuing care and putting care at the centre of all we do. Throughout this mini-series, we, I think, have really demonstrated that both humanity and our planet, our very existence, is dependent on thinking more about care, of valuing care and putting care at the centre. And if we had a world where care genuinely mattered and shaped all we do, imagine what a world it would be. So I'm I'm feeling rather optimistic at the end of this mini-series. And of course, Ana Greta, we will carry these conversations about care forward. But I think this mini-series has given us some really powerful thinking as we refer to our hashtag, as we refer to, to care in passing. These episodes collectively give us a strong framework to build on. Mm,
2: absolutely, um, thank you so much, Sharon, for the work that you put into this series, particularly in today's discussion. It's been quite a remarkable one. Policy Forum Pod is, of course, produced by PolicyForum.net, and we'll leave a link to the publications that we've talked about today on the in the show. There, we are, of course, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. And if you're interested in our degree programs and short courses, you can find out more by going to the website crawford.anu.edu.au. Thank you so much for joining us through this episode and throughout our value caring mini-series. We love to hear feedback and thoughts and advice and criticisms on our programs and on our ideas. So please reach out to us on Twitter at appspolicyforum, Policy Forum, or you can email us directly at podcast at policyforum.net or or you can join our Policy Forum Pod Facebook group uh, for some direct engagement discussion. We'll be back with our regular programming next week. So from me, Anna Greta-Hunter,
1: I'll see you then. And from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.